0: today at verse 42 to 47 in a message entitled the church together acts records the history of the early christian church the spread of the gospel as well as the opposition to it and the persecution that began to build the church grew and spread as they focused on the gospel and as they were empowered by the holy spirit the holy spirit empowers believers and churches to live for the glory of god to share the good news about Jesus with others, and to advance the kingdom of God. We arrive now at the conclusion of Acts chapter 2 in verse 42 to 47, which we've been considering in sections. The early believers, as we've learned, are said to have devoted themselves to several practices in their lives together. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. This was the word that was inspired and given to them specifically focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and then how to live for the Lord. They also focused on the fellowship together and their lives together, which encompassed the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread, as we learned, is a general term because they were meeting from house to house and having common meals. But then more specifically, it's applied to the Lord's Supper when the body and the blood are represented in the bread and the cup, reminding us of all that Jesus has done on our behalf. And then finally, we looked at prayer and how they were a praying people. And there's this uh, testimony of prayer really that rises up out of the book of Acts. And as we thought about what prayer is, we focused on some different aspects of prayer. We defined it. We looked at why some people don't pray as they should and what that looks like for us to apply it to our lives and to grow in our communion with God. The message today, I think, will provide a composite overview of the early church and the impact that it has on church together and what it means for us to be the body of Christ in the world, living out this testimony that we have for Christ. So begin reading here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, and we'll go through verse 47. And broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I believe the key phrase is found in verse 44. And it says in verse 44, Now all the believers were together. We think about the parallel illustration in the New Testament of the church being like a body, the metaphor of the church as the body of Christ. We think about the human body, and of course, we know that the human body is designed by God for all of its parts to work together. We are designed by God to work interdependently. So each of our body systems are interconnected and dependent on one another. The heart, which is part of the circulatory system, does not beat unless the brain, which is part of the nervous system, tells it to. The skeletal system is dependent on our digestive system for nutrition and for strength. The muscular system needs the respiratory and the circulatory systems to be able to provide energy in the form of oxygen and nutrients. And all of these systems are integral to our health physically. And any of those systems, if they're off, are going to cause us trouble In our physical lives Well in the same sense the phrase the body of christ The comparison of who we are as the church Really describes how we're to function And the church is described as one body One body in christ the body of christ or simply as the body So what does it mean to be the body of christ? What are some of those implications of how that applies to us? Well, first of all it tells us that Jesus is the head of the church. We are not. We are servants of his. We align ourselves under him and under his word. And as the head of the church, we show him the ultimate allegiance. We are joined with Christ in salvation. And because we are joined with Christ in salvation, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And because we have the power of the Holy Spirit and we have the beautiful message of the gospel... We have the opportunity to represent Christ in the world. And we do that through a diversity of spiritual gifts applied to the overall functioning of the church. And we have this common bond because we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Together is an adverb that indicates when two or more people or things are together for a purpose. So when we say someone is together or we are together or we are the church together, what we're saying is we are assembled together because we are united in Christ and we are pursuing common goals because of who we are and who we follow. And this should inform everything that we do in the church together. So let's consider some characteristics of life in the church together. And the first one is this. The church together will be in awe of the power of God. I want you to look now at verse 43. Verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe. Another translation says, And fear came upon them all. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. So what we know at a very basic level is that the church met together. Now the number of believers at this point was probably uh, beyond even the beginning number of the thousands that we find that were saved at Pentecost. So it's unlikely that this is only referring to a collective gathering of the large group of the church, but more so they were meeting together house to house from day to day in smaller gatherings. The expression, uh, all the believers were together, means literally that they remained near to one another. Or we might think about it in another way, they weren't just together, but they were very much together. And everyone was filled with awe. Now this word awe is also translated as fear. And awe or fear in a healthy sense uh, are feelings of fear mixed with respect and wonder. So let's apply this to our perception of God and our relationship with God. If we are in awe of God, we're going to have reverence toward God and we're going to respect him in everything that we do. And it says that many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, I think this idea of many wonders and signs is tied to the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. So I think that miracles, wonders, and signs all go hand in hand. A miracle is an event that involves the direct and powerful action of God. So what God does in a miracle is he overcomes an ordinary law, of nature and he defies it uh, and defies any common expectation of what that normal law would look like. That ordinary natural law would look like. And he does something that is supernatural. So miracles are supernatural and the words wonders and signs are used to reflect them. Now let's think back for just a moment at the narrative of scripture and particularly the history of miracles as they unfolded in uh, the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are several concentrated time periods of miracles. The first that we see, beyond, of course, the act of creation that God brought about uh, through his spoken word, but I'm speaking now in terms of being applied to the lives of his people, and the first period would have been under the leadership of Moses. Moses, from the time of the Exodus up through the Judges, there were all sorts of things that were taking place uh, to empower them to be freed. We also see at the beginning of the prophetic era. So you look at the lives of uh, Elijah and Elisha, for example, and there are miracles that are concentrated in their ministries. And then finally, in uh, the beginning of Israel's exile, there were some miraculous things that were witnessed. When we come to the New Testament in the Gospels and the book of Acts, there are many miracles recorded. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are some 20 specific miracles. And within those 20 specific miracles... There are nine different times where miracles are grouped. Meaning it's not just one miracle, but it's a grouping of miracles that took place during uh, the days of the book of Acts and the unfolding of the early church. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4 says, because it connects these three words, signs, wonders, and miracles. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the Lord gave gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He bore witness through the signs and the wonders and the various miracles. So these miracles, these signs and wonders were spectacular. And the writer of Hebrews, as he's writing, uses those three terms. Signs, meaning visible uh, things that pointed to God's supernatural power. Wonders, meaning things that create awe and amazement. And then miracles that reveal God's power through his mighty acts. Just a little bit later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 3, it says that the apostles spoke boldly for the Lord and God testified to the message of his grace, listen to this, by enabling them to do signs and wonders. I believe that the working of miracles and the signs and the wonders had a twofold function. The first part was to authenticate the messenger. So when Jesus performed miracles, for example, in his earthly ministry, he would not perform those miracles for just a uh, Show or a display to excite the people. In fact, they asked for that sometimes, and Jesus knew that their hearts were hard, was the only reason they were asking for that. Jesus, when he did miracles, they were purposeful. They were to authenticate his identity as the Messiah, and then, to, secondly, to authenticate the message that he was sharing. The same thing applied to the apostles and to the early church. In that, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders authenticated both the messenger and the message and verified who they were and what they were saying, that it was indeed true. So we can say with confidence that these things served a specific purpose. And we don't see signs and wonders in the same sense today as they did then, concentrated in that way because those were the purposes of God for the unfolding of the New Testament church. But what I want you to know is that the God who performed miracles and the God who performed signs and wonders in the book of Acts is the same God today. He has not changed. And one of the most significant ways that we see the miraculous power of God in, at work in the lives of people is through changed lives, people who are transformed by the gospel. So that resurrection power of Jesus, when the blood of Jesus is applied through repentance and faith, the resurrection power of of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us new and we come to know and to follow Jesus. That is a miracle of God's grace because he brings those who are spiritually dead to life and he reconciles us to himself there's no greater blessing that we could experience the signs and wonders had the effect of bringing awe and fear to the people listen to what the psalmist says in psalm 33 and verse 8 let the earth fear the lord and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him or what about psalm 65 and verse 8 it says those who live at the ends of the earth stand in awe of your wonders from where the sun rises to where it sets you inspire shouts of joy and then probably a little bit more familiar verse for you would be proverbs 1 and verse 7 that says the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction somebody categorized fears uh, in this way they said first of all there is a holy fear there is a healthy fear and there is a harmful fear uh holy fear is fear of the lord where we're in awe of his glory of his grace of his goodness of who he is to us a healthy fear is a fear of something that is dangerous or potentially harmful that could be physical or spiritual but our alert system goes off because of the holy spirit guides us in those things and leads us to avoid the things that we need to avoid and to embrace the things that we need to embrace But then there's also an unhealthy fear, a harmful fear. And those are fears that hinder us. So, for example, it would be fear of man, where we're more worried about what other people are going to think about us than what God thinks about us. Or it might be an irrational fear about a particular circumstance that we're going through, and we think that uh, it's going to overtake us when in reality it's not. God's grace is going to sustain us. So what we need to be pursuing is a holy fear because our perspective of God and a healthy fear because of what that does in us and then we can avoid the harmful fears. And I think you ought to have the same heart level response to a spiritual danger as you do to a physical danger. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, in a physical danger, um, we have certain things happen to us that alert us that something is not right or good for us and we choose to go in the opposite direction of it spiritually speaking when the holy spirit shows us those things that aren't the best for us and we commit ourselves through humility and through reading the word and through following the leading of the holy spirit to fear god and to avoid it or to take the action that he's leading us to that's when we can apply these things in a very positive and christ-like way but where there's a fear a lack of fear in the land for god there's going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of destruction I'd like to tell you that's limited to time periods in the Bible. We look around us today and we see that the core issue, the problem in our society with violence and overrunning authority and all the different things that we see, where does that come from? A lack of fear of God. A lack of fear of the one true living God. And in the days of Noah, you remember, they were even inventing ways to sin and the per, wickedness was pervasive Why was that? Because there was no fear of God. Noah's fear of God made it possible for him to obey God and to worship him. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He warned people that there was a judgment coming, even though they didn't understand what a flood was going to be, of course. He told them that they needed to get right with God, and in the end, only his family did. So the response to the fear of God or to awe of God does not define the need for it. The need for it is for everybody. The response is for those who have faith and those who believe that God's word is true. And awe and fear serves as a warning to keep us in the center of the will of God, and it guides our worship. I think about the Jews who, at times, uh, God's people as a nation, uh, they lacked a fear of God that caused them to neglect God's commandments. You remember, at times, they took God lightly people carelessly mixed with the world they didn't remain holy they weren't concerned about these things they they weren't afraid of the of the justice and the righteousness of God I think about specifically in the book of Malachi where uh, they profaned the name of God and they failed to worship him seriously that's what Malachi uh, says so the situation was they were giving their second best to God In other words, they were just giving, if they had anything left over, they were giving it to God. They were bringing the blemished offerings, and they weren't thinking anything of it. It was just leftovers. So here's my question for you. Are you worshiping God with your best, or are you worshiping God with your leftovers? Are you taking prayer and the Word and the holiness of God seriously? Is that informing how you live your life? Because an awe or a fear of God will guide how you live. Fear will drive your behavior when it's healthy and when it's holy. Listen to what John Owen said from yesteryear. He said, to fear the Lord and his goodness and to fear him for his goodness, to trust in his power and faithfulness, to obey his authority, to delight in his will and his grace, to love him above all because of his excellencies and his beauty. This is to glorify Him. But we know part of this as well is that awe of God prepares us to meet God and be ready for the coming judgment. Church, we cannot afford to disregard the coming judgment of God. If you understand your predicament because of sin, it will point you to believing in the gospel, in Christ. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, you have everything to fear. You have everything to be concerned about. Because if you step out into eternity, apart from faith in Christ, you will experience judgment for your sins. You will be forever separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell and that's the reality and I know that people shy away from that today there's not much talk about it I couldn't tell you the last time that I heard a sermon that even got close to it I know they're out there but here's the point we're not being truthful or loving if we don't tell people as it is and I want you to know the reality today of the judgment that is coming so that you'll be in awe of God and you'll put your faith and trust in in Jesus. When you see God for who He is, it changes everything. And you begin to understand what God wants. You begin to respond to Him with awe and fear. So I believe the church together will be in awe of the power of God. But there's a second characteristic the church together will meet needs. We move now to verse 44 and 45. It says, All the believers were together, they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and their property. They distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. I believe that there was a generosity principle at play in the early church. And I think what is reflected by the generosity principle that was at play in the early church is that they were more concerned about Jesus, and Jesus was more important to them ultimately than their possessions. They lived in close community. Remember what happened to them. Persecution ramped up quickly. And many of the early believers were marginalized. They got pushed out of families. They got pushed out of jobs. They sometimes got pushed out of their own community. And they were in this circumstance where they had to have help. Somebody had to step up. So the people that stepped up were the fellow believers. It was their family that stepped up. And I believe that this section, as it unfolds, is descriptive and not primarily prescriptive. And here's what I mean by that. Meaning that they voluntarily shared in this way because of the special circumstances they found themselves in. The the tense of the verbs used here in Acts do not communicate permanent or completed action, but rather in-progress or uncompleted action. So it's actually translated in part as from time to time. We also know from the overall record of Scripture that in the parable of the talents, a different number of talents was assigned to each person. Everybody didn't get the same thing. Everybody had the same directive that they were to use what they had for the good of the master and for the furtherance of what had been entrusted to them, but they were not given the same amount. We also understand from Scripture that um, rather than accept material support from time to time, Paul would work to meet his material needs, even though he said it was proper for the church to provide for its leadership. And believers were instructed to give to the poor. Was it not Paul who also said, if a man uh, doesn't work, he ought not eat? So all of these things are in play as it relates to how we understand this generosity principle. And I do not think that there is a mandate to do things exactly like verse 44 and 45, but before you think you're off the hook, I want you to understand that the spirit and the practice of generosity and the care for one another remains, and it actually rises above the specific situation. So he's using the example to teach us the principle. So however that principle is ultimately applied, we should take it seriously and we should understand that God doesn't just own a portion of what we have. God owns everything that we have. And we would not have anything were it not for the grace of God in our lives. He gave us the strength to earn it. He gave gave us the ability to think. He gave us opportunities that he placed in front of us. All these things come together to provide what we need. And we want to be a blessing to others as the Lord leads And there's some guiding things that are a part of this. As the church, we should have concern for the poor. We should care for those who are in need. And there are many passages of Scripture that deal with this. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about the need to have concern and compassion for the poor. One verse is Proverbs 14 and verse 31 where it says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him so we've got to be concerned about the poor jesus said the poor you'll have with you always jesus was concerned about the poor and we should be as well we ought to be willing to share with anybody who's in need ephesians 4 and verse 28 says let the thief steal no longer but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need so what that says to us is we ought to hold on loosely to the things we have We ought to be willing to share freely. We ought to be willing to to see the needs around us and not wonder, well, well, why did that happen? Or why are they in this situation? Why is this circumstance? But we see from a heart of compassion that we want to help meet needs. Now, let me give you a word of caution here. This is somewhat complicated and complex in the current drug culture that we live in. And there are many situations in this current drug culture that we live in where we can harm and not help So I think we need to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. We need to be careful. We need to want to help people and not hurt people further. And we just have to ask God for wisdom on how to do that. I can't give you a a particular specific guidance on every situation you're going to encounter, but I can give you this. When you encounter a need and you're presented with it, you ought to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, even if it's in that moment in a spirit of prayer, pray and ask the Holy Spirit, is this a good moment for me to do something? And what can I do to be like Christ in this situation and help somebody rather than hurting the situation further? I think providing assistance for other churches as we're able is a part of this uh, in being generous. I think about the example of the church at Macedonia who was in severe trials and tribulations and, and actually severe poverty is the way the scripture reads in 2 Corinthians 8. But yet what did they do? They gave generously they overflowed the bible i love this phrase the bible says that they overflowed in a wealth of generosity and that should be our testimony as well so let me ask you this if a church in great need and in significant persecution like the church churches of macedonia can be generous and then the bible says to whom much is given much is required what does that say to us Who've been blessed with much what that says to us is we have the same responsibility to be generous in a church like ours that is blessed with many resources we want to keep our hands open so that we're helping freely to advance the kingdom of God and as I often say God will not let flow to us what we won't let flow through us we are a river of God's blessings and not a reservoir so, what that means is that our hands are open and we say, Lord, what can we do with this? And Lord, send us more so that we can bless somebody else. That has to continually be our mindset. And the only way that can be our mindset is if the church is comprised of generous people. You understand that we can't do these things from the giving of stingy people, we can't do this from the perspective of people that don't understand generosity. We're doing this from people who understand that everything that God has entrusted to them is a blessing of His grace. And we want to pour that grace out on other people because it's been so freely given to us. You look at the church, the church has a, uh, historically the church at large has a strong track record of generosity. It's noted, of course, in these New Testament passages, but also in society in general, the promotion of hospitals, adoption and foster care, a multitude of uh, philanthropic uh, charities and helpful organizations, the advancement of basic human rights, freedom and liberty, and more have been impacted by the Christian church. It cannot be overstated. And today the church continues to make a difference in the lives of literally hundreds of millions of people around the world. I, I can't even imagine what the world would be like was it, were it not for God's people. I can't even imagine what it would be like to live my own life if it weren't for God's people, but certainly not what the world would be like. And did Jesus not say, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear? He said, rather, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Did Jesus not say, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy and thieves won't break in and steal? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also A.W. Tozer said, Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Now, you've probably heard it said before that uh, it's wealthy people who are generous. The reality is, generous people are generous. No matter what their resources are. There was a research project that was done that closed out in 2021 and was released somewhere in that time frame by an organization creatively called Gray Matter Research. They studied evangelical Protestants, and here's what they found. They found that donors with incomes in their households below $30,000 gave a median of 1.5% of pre-tax income Donors with six-figure incomes gave a whole lot more just I mean substantially dramatically more 1.56 percent of their income Hardly any difference at all So here's what it turns out It turns out evangelical Christians are not very generous in general It turns out that many are not consistent in their generosity In fact, only about 13% of evangelicals give anything that even nears a tithe. And yet here's the contradiction I want you to see. The Bible says that God loves a generous giver. That's what it says. He loves a generous giver. Are you generous? Do you care about the needs of others? Are you concerned about advancing the kingdom of God? Are you concerned about generations of churches being planted? Are you concerned about lost souls being saved? Are you concerned about family units being strengthened? And of men growing in their discipleship and women growing in their discipleship and the church growing in its fellowship? Are you concerned about all these things? Who's giving to make it happen? Are you? Are you generous? And here's my word for you. Everybody thinks, someday I'm going to be generous. Someday I'm going to be faithful. Someday I'm going to do these things for the Lord. And you know what's going to happen? If that's your mentality, you're going to keep putting it off. And then you're going to be hit with a load of regret for the opportunities you missed. When our lives have been changed by grace, everything operative in our lives will be touched by grace. And we will want to be generous. So here's my encouragement for you. I want to challenge you if you're not generous and you've not understood this and you're holding on to things tightly rather than loosely and freely given to the Lord. Start somewhere. Just start somewhere. step out on faith and say, God, everything you gave me is a gift. Everything you gave me comes from your grace, and I want to be generous. I want to be generous with my time. I want to be generous with my spiritual gifts. I want to be generous with the resources that you've entrusted to me. At the end of my life, I do not want to turn back and look and say that I was ashamed because of how I used what you entrusted to me in this moment that you gave me to live. God, help us to be a generous people and to find our confidence and our faith in him because the church together is going to meet needs and then there's one more characteristic i want to share with you the church together will have joyful and sincere hearts verse 46 says they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts i don't know maybe it was the food that was bringing the joy and the sincerity but at any rate they're joyful and they're sincere so where does joy come to us from in our hearts from a relationship with god from being filled with the holy spirit from abiding in christ you remember what the prophet nehemiah said to the people in nehemiah 8 and verse 10 the joy of the lord is my strength joy is rejoicing or gladness strength means a place of safety or refuge it's a, it's a stronghold and here's what i think some people think about god i think some people think about god that he's perpetually unhappy And that somehow joy is something that is wrong. Well, we know God hates sin. We know God's a God of wrath because he's holy and just. These are aspects of his character that cannot be diminished. Yet God finds great joy in his creation and in his children. God is the most joyful of all, and he is our source of joy. And you know what you'll find inevitably? And this might hit close to home for some of you, but what you'll find inevitably is people who lack joy, that just have that, just that sullen, sour demeanor a lot, and they're not experiencing joy in their own lives or in the lives of others. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and spend much time in the Word and in prayer and not be convicted about this. And listen, I've told you before, I have, by nature, a more melancholy personality. I do. I know it. I've had it my whole life. I'm going to have it the rest of my life. So I have to work at cultivating joy And sometimes when i'm feeling negative i'm feeling critical and i'm feeling like you know The sky's falling about everything the lord just stirs me and says wait a minute. Do you understand what kind of? Blessing i've given to you. Do you understand the magnitude of my grace? Do you understand the things that i've provided you with do you understand the opportunities that have been placed before you? And that is conviction from the holy spirit saying to me that that's not okay And i'm saying to you today that if your attitude is always sullen Not pleasant not happy That's not okay before the lord because that is not from the spirit of god That is from your prideful flesh And you need to deal with it and the reason you need to deal with it is because you're living in misery for no reason There's no point to it. You're not making a point out of it except to yourself Think about jesus in his earthly life jesus Jesus was filled with joy His enemies accused him of being too joyful from time to time he got in trouble because of the people that he ate with and the people that he spent time with and the joy that he expressed. And yet he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He spoke of his joy. He promised joy to his disciples. He spoke of a joyful shepherd and a joyful woman and a joyful father in his parables. And then I think about uh, the indication that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents, that a well done will be issued for those who have done well in serving God. And you know what we're gonna be invited into if we hear that Well done. We're going to be invited into the joy of the master. That's what's in front of you. That's what's awaiting you. It's the joy of the Lord. So if the joy of the Lord is awaiting you eternally, should you not start living in the joy of the Lord in the here and now? This makes a difference in how we live and who we are. And I believe that joy is a distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus. And it's a fruit of the Spirit love joy peace long suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self control so well, how can the through the spirit be a reality in my life if I want joy how can it be a reality by submitting yourself to the holy spirit and being can t- keep on being filled with him on a daily basis so that our lives are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy Romans 15 and verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you believe, you can have joy and peace, and you can abound in hope. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I'd be joyful if I didn't have this particular circumstance I'm dealing with. I'd be joyful if I didn't have this problem or this obstacle. I'd be joyful if this thing had broken my way last week. Joy is not confined to positive situations. Joy can be found in difficult situations and in trials and tribulations. And here, here's something I, wanna, I want you to think through for a moment. Those times can sometimes be your greatest times of growth. When I look back in my life at the things that I've experienced, and I think about those mountaintop experiences that, that were so fun and joyful at, at the moment, and happy in the moment, I also realize those weren't the times that I grew the most. Times, the times that I grew the most, was when I was in the valley. And it was dark, and I didn't have an immediate answer to my situation, and a good God was there for me and he reached down to me and he encouraged me through his Holy Spirit and he encouraged me through his people and he brought me through the circumstances. What I'm here to tell you today is that the same can happen to you. That's the kind of joy that we ought to have. James said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And then I think a sincere heart means to be free from the pretense of hypocrisy. Now let me define hypocrisy for you here as we think about sincerity hypocrisy at its most basic level is when your words and your actions are inconsistent okay so sincerity is going to be and none of us are perfect in this we're works in progress we're working out our salvation we're looking forward to being with the Lord he's shaping us he's molding us he's pruning us all this we're not perfect but it's a pattern so it's the pattern of your life that the words that you speak and the things that you do are they consistent Let me tell you where it's going to show up most quickly for you, and that's going to be if you have kids at home. And you're raising kids, or maybe you're dealing with grandkids. And they see that you say certain things, but you do other things that your life is contrary to what you're actually saying. They're going to look at that. And a lot of them, here's what they're going to say. I don't want any part of that if that's what Christianity is. And they're going to walk away from it may we not be the obstacle or the barrier that causes anybody to say that. And let's be sincere in our approach. There's another warning here, though. Sincerity is not a standalone virtue because you can be sincere and be wrong. But if you couple sincerity with truth, then it becomes virtuous because you're applying something that is biblically consistent. And Paul told the church at Corinth that he conducted himself among them with a godly sincerity His sincerity was a godly sincerity and it's a pattern for us to follow. So sincerity is important because it shows and it doesn't just say. So our collective prayer should be, Lord, help our words and our lives to match up. And when they don't, help us to be spiritually sensitive to that and get right before you. All this comes together in closing and the church together is a powerful witness. The church is a powerful witness. It says in verse 47 they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, watch what happened. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Our collective prayer should be that we're not just going through the motions, we don't have time to go through the motions. The hour is at hand. Jesus could return at any time. We're going to stand before him someday. Are we giving a good witness of what it means to follow Jesus Christ in our lives? I want you to understand that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a place in his church and in his kingdom. Even if you're just getting started out, or you haven't grown a lot yet in your faith, or there are a lot of things you don't know or that you don't understand just yet, don't worry about any of that. All you've got to say if you want to be useful to god all you've got to say if you want your christian life to be Genuine to be sincere is you've got to come for the lord You got to say lord. I want to follow jesus and I want to do it faithfully. Would you help me? He'll help you He'll empower you to do it and our prayer should be that we are seeing things happen in this church People coming to faith the lord adding to the number of the church so that we could step back and we could say Only god could do that When was the last moment in your life or in your worship or even collectively as a church that we might step back and say Only god could do that That's what we're praying for That's what they experienced in the early church and those signs and wonders That's what we want to see today in the terms of changed lives and the, the church dynamic and growing and and Moving in the direction that it should and only the lord can do that And he'll help us And we need one another in the church. The church together. Let's bow our heads.